32, and it says this. It says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 5, 27 through 32. So, Pastor Matt, what you preaching on this week? <laughs> Lust, adultery, divorce, remarriage. Actually, over the next two weeks. There is not a person in this room who's not been touched by what I just said. It used to be that you'd hear about it, I heard about some family went through that or had a relative that went through that, but today there is not one person here who's not been significantly impacted by these things. This is the beauty of Jesus preaching. He goes right to the need. He knows right where you live. He puts his finger on the point of pain. And then he talks about the law. Now, I'm thinking, usually the law for most people is, is something they think of condemning and confronting, and I just feel worse about this from the law. But you're going to see something about this law that is beautiful. It does expose the pain. A good doctor does that. He exposes the problem, and this law will lead you to the solution, and to, to great joy. There are two objectives that I have this morning and next week. One, to give you hope, and two, to give you help. Now that sounds pretty simple, but I believe that's exactly what Jesus does. When we consider the law, and he talks about this law, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, the judicial laws, but, but really all of God's Word. He is going to say it is more than just confronting the external appearance of your life or the things that you do. He says, I'm going to your heart. This is what I really care about is the heart. Not only did it confront every single person there with that, but the, the professional religious people were really good on appearances. And they were really good about doing all the right things. But their hearts weren't right. And Jesus will make this statement, I have not come to lower the standard. I have not come to get rid of the standard. I have come to fulfill it. So the standard that he set, we find the very last verse of chapter 5 of Matthew, is perfection. You're never going to get there. I'm not going to either. So he didn't say, well, let's try to get to 90%. Can you get to 90% with me <laughs> and work it on down? No, he keeps it 
at perfection. And so he fulfills the law for you in your place. This is what we call substitutionary atonement. In other words, he fulfilled the law, and then he laid down his life for you to offer you eternal life. This is just the beauty of the gospel. Now, he will explain this, that I do care about what you, how you look. I mean, God cares about everything. I care about how you look, and I care about what you're doing. But most of all, I care about who you are here. The, 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 the part of you that no one sees but God, that's what he cares about. And I want to illustrate this in six ways. This is what he does for us. We have two topics. Last week we talked about murder. And this week we're going to talk about adultery. These are the first two that he mentions. The law is a set. It's interwoven. When we talk about the law of God, it is, it is not just, well, I have this law, I've kept all of these. When, when you break one, it's like a, a set of china. You, you break one plate, you've broken all of them. Which reminds me of this last week, I, I broke a dish. <laughs> I said that was one of my mother's special ones. Well, you know, I think she had some extras. But it's, you can, this, is, this is the way really the law, the law is, is described to us. It, it is you, you offend in one point. James tells us that you offend in one point. You're guilty of all of it. So the Ten Commandments typically doesn't bring a lot of comfort. The law of God or the law of the land doesn't bring us a lot of comfort. But I want to see, see the law, the scriptures, in, in three ways. And, and I hope you can remember this because it's, it's helpful. All of the Bible, scripture, will, number one, show you your need for Christ. You need Jesus. You are a sinner, and you're going to die. And the only way to have your sins washed away and to be given eternal life is Jesus. And this law is going to expose your need. Secondly, this law is going to lead you to Jesus. Not just show you you need Jesus. This law, in fact, all of the, the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis, is pointing to the coming Messiah. Pointing to the coming Messiah. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And then he came. So the word, the scriptures, and if you just sit down and read them today, you pick up Matthew, you pick up John, you pick up, you pick up Genesis, you keep on reading, it's going to lead you to Jesus. And then thirdly, once you do become a believer, you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal Savior, this word will lead you with Jesus every day. It's an amazing book. And I hope that you grow to love this book as it helps you in those ways. It shows you your need. It, sh- it, it leads you to Jesus. He's the only solution. And then it leads you along with Jesus. Now, this topic that we have today is, um, like last week's, controversial. <laughs> we talk about murder. What is murder? That's politically charged. It's culturally charged. We talk about immorality. It's also a very controversial statement. So rather than, and and I think this is what we can tend to do, is we can get into an argument really quick with people. 
And I think a lot of Christians do that. Uh, we're talking about the sanctity of life, sanctity of marriage, and we just, boom, we're right into an argument. We'll let it back up just a little bit. We'll take a deep breath before we get into this because there are a lot of people in Boulder Valley that do not believe what I'm going to be saying today. Okay, you need to recognize that. It doesn't change my mind, but it, but it helps me understand the world that I live in. How do we engage our present-day culture when we have conflicting views? We call them worldviews. And what I try to do is to respect the fact that a person has a different worldview. They have a different point of view. They come from a different way. Now, I may not respect that opinion or that idea, but I respect that person. And so I'll listen. I'll be careful. So what I will often ask a person before I get into any of these controversial subjects is, what is your worldview? How do you view truth? What is truth? How do you establish truth? What is the basis for your decision-making? And let them talk. And if they let me, and I'll usually ask, do you mind if I share with you how I see things and my worldview, which I would call my worldview is a biblical worldview. And how did I come to that? And I, and I like going, I know I've gone through these things before. Uh, many things you hear from me, you'll hear again and again if you're here long enough, uh, because I think they're incredibly important. The reason I believe this is uh, Blaise Pascal once said that God has created in every human being a God-shaped vacuum that only he can fill. I think we're just... You have the, we talked about general revelation. You, you, you go outside, you see God's creation. But the reason why I believe this is truth. Uh, if you go down into, onto Pearl Street and say this is truth, you're not, everybody's not going to agree with you. <laughs> why do I believe this is truth? One, one is it's self-attesting. God says here, this is truth. And not many books will say that. I don't know any other book that says that, that this is all truth. I think the evidence, secondly, is, supports that, that, that as I investigate this, and our faith is not a, a blind, empty faith that has no evidence. It is, it is faith based upon evidence. As it says in Hebrews, evidence not seen. It's like the wind when it blows. You see evidence of it blowing. You don't see the, see the wind. So for me, it not only is, is uh, stated here, my word is truth. It doesn't, there's a difference between containing truth and it being it is truth. Every word of God is pure. He declares that over and over throughout all of Scripture. The evidence backs that up. The third reason for me is that personally, this book has changed my life. It has changed my life. And when I was 18 years old and God opened my eyes to this, it radically changed my life. And I could go on and on and on and testifying of the reality by personal experience. That's how I have come to this conclusion. And so this message, and I hope every message I ever preach or ever comes from valley pulpit will be based upon the reality and the truth of God's word as the final authority. That's my worldview. 
So when it comes to issues, rather than jump into a political fray or to quote other people or to go march with a sign, I want to say, what does God have to say? What does God have to say in his word about this? So let's look at this biblical worldview of a very difficult subject of lust, of adultery, of divorce. We'll also be talking about remarriage. Last week, we talked about murder. And some translations, in fact, if you read the Old King James, it says, thou shalt not kill. But all killing is not sinful. It's, it's pretty clear in Scripture that there are killings, killing that uh, is justifiable. And sometimes it's, it's, or sometimes it could be an accident. And, and all of these things are covered. But what, what is God calls murder is one, homicide. This will be the taking, the taking of the life of an innocent person. Suicide the taking of your life, abortion, which is the taking of the life of the innocent, of a child before it's born. Infanticide, the taking of the life of a child after they're born. And euthanasia, the taking of the life of maybe an elderly person or a mercy, a mercy type killing. Now, all of these are politically charged. And I can tell you that for all of these, there are loads of Scripture that direct us. So if you say, well, I don't believe in God's word, I don't, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God's word, whatever your worldview is, you're probably going to come to different conclusions than what I just said. But this is the way I have decided to follow Jesus, to follow his word, and to believe these things, recognizing that I live in a world that is not that way. So those are acts of murder. But there's also what he said, the attitude of murder, anger. Remember we talked about that last week? Is that anger stirring up? He said, you are guilty when you have anger stirred up in your heart. So this week we're again going back to the heart. He said, he says, you shall not commit adultery. This is our, our text. You've heard that said. And the Pharisees, they're interesting how these religious leaders if you look at the, some of the writings, they, they, they kind of interpret, they interpret passages of Scripture to their own advantage. It's kind of like, what this really means is, <clears throat> don't sleep with another man's wife, but everything else is fair game. That's kind of the way they lived. They're not moral men. So <clears throat> we're going to find in the whole of Scripture, this is not just an address to, to adultery of, to men, it is also to women. It is it is includes the breaking of a covenant of marriage. It includes any sexual relationship outside of your marriage. It would include, uh, for both the men and women, premarital sex, homosexuality, incest, pedophilia, bestiality. I'm not going to get into each of these today, but I would say there are just, to me, an incredible amount of scriptures, Old Testament and New, that support this position. Now, this is what God says. We don't need to be mean and angry to win an argument with the secular world. We don't do that. The weight of our argument is not my persuasive words. The weight of the argument is the scripture. And to remember this, that he gives us these commands for our good. He gives us 
things for our good. And this is the, that's exactly the text of Scripture that we had memorized two weeks ago. So the real issue that, that he wants to get to is not just how you look and what you do, but what's going on in that heart beyond what people are seeing. So the question is, when you talk about this text, it says if you say don't commit adultery, but if you have lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. Now, I'm not going to ask people to raise their hands who has lusted. <laughs> but, you know, adultery, we can say, you know what, that didn't include me. You know what, never murdered anyone, didn't commit adultery. But lust can destroy our lives. And lust is not confined just to sexual temptation, but to desire anything outside of the bounds of what God has intended for you. Anything. So how did, how did a, a, a pure desire, a right desire, go wrong? We're created with desires. We have emotions. And when God created us, our desires were right. But they were designed to be fulfilled God's way. It's interesting to note when, when, uh, we, when God created us, put us on this earth, He gave us everything we need to be happy. Everything. When we start to go outside that, we're not going to find the joy and happiness that we think that we, we would. So here's kind of the dynamic of it. I'm going to read from James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted of God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and He Himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. So in all of us, we have that. So I'd like to, I'd like to kind of this morning put this in context in the story of the Scripture. And if you'd let me do this, I know I've done this before, but I think it's really important to help understand how this, this, uh, this lust works. If we, if we were to go back to the very beginning of time and, and they're, they're, we start telling the story, it's got four chapters to it. And, and I think that, you know, when you think of the Bible, you get, it's a big book. Now, yours may not be as big as mine. I have to have large print, but, uh, but it's, it's a big book. 66 books, 40 different offers, authors written over 2,000 years. We have these scriptures. All of these scriptures are interwoven into one a one fluid unfolding story. It's beautiful when you read it that way. But it begins by this first scene, this first chapter called creation. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God created man and God created woman. God brought them together. They became one flesh. He created everything. And the world was perfect. And in fact, it, it is beyond, the, the Garden of Eden was beyond what you could possibly imagine. It was so amazing. I mean, it would be like the perfect place. You know, we talk about, well, where's the perfect place to live? Every, there is not one flaw. 
Not one flaw in the trees or in in the skies or in, in, in the rocks. Not one flaw in humanity. Nothing is wrong. It is amazing. Say, well, well, what wrong? What went wrong? Adam and Eve had everything they needed. Everything. There was nothing they didn't need. Every desire was fulfilled. The second chapter is called the fall. Kind of like the crash and burn. <laughs> and and how that when you move from creation to the crash and burn, this fall, is God said, there is a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden. Tree of life. There is another and, and there is another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree. Okay. Now my my maybe you're you don't think like I do, but I think, why would you do that? Why would you do that? This is how we get to the point of blaming God. God, if you really loved us and really cared about about us, you wouldn't have put that tree there. Now, you know the way kids are. I mean, if you tell a kid, you bring him into the whole room, you say you can sit in any chair you want, but don't sit in that chair. You know, you walk out of the room. (laughs) You may be looking around. Here's, here's, here's the reason, I believe. You cannot, God created man and woman to have a loving, intimate, close relationship with them, love. You cannot have love without free will. Do you hear that? You cannot have love without free will. Now, Say so we could have created a bunch of robots. Everybody's going to love me, okay? But the tree gave, gave them the opportunity to make that choice. I'm going to love God. I'm going to follow God. But even this is even before they had that nature that was bent to do evil. You know, you're going to walk by that tree, <laughs> think, oh, man. Temptation. I would love to live without temptation. But this is why I believe God, we're going to see in the next chapter, He doesn't just leave us hanging with all of this. It, it reminds me a little bit of our, our grandson. You know, he's, what is he, 200 or three? Two. He's two. Okay, Landon. He's over there in, in, in uh, Palau. So he, he heard a word at church, of course. Um, stupid. And he loves this word, stupid. So mom and dad said, we're not going to say stupid in our house. Well, it's like, stupid. (laughs) I mean, now he's obsessed with saying stupid. And so he gets corrected, (laughs) and he can't help it. He, He just... He waits, he goes into another room, and he goes, stupid, stupid. He gets corrected again. So then he figures out, because he's getting training every time he's, he does this, then he walks out and says, 
We don't say stupid. We don't say stupid. We don't say stupid. And train for that. So then Heather's parents are over there visiting. Joe and Lana Lee are really good friends of ours. And they're sitting around after dinner. And, and, and Joe said some kind of comment about something. That's really stupid. And Landon goes, oh. <laughs> Papa said stupid. <laughs> well, what, what is it about kids and adults that that which we say is forbidden, there is this temptation. There is that tree in the garden we have to think about. But God, in doing that, gave you free will to love Him and to follow Him. There's not a person in Boulder Valley, there's not a person in this world He forces to love Him choice he doesn't leave us hanging because this all happens in genesis chapter three this fall part so you have creation perfection everything i need don't need anything else i don't need that tree but in here in the fall i choose what is forbidden i make an incredible mistake but in but in genesis 3 and verse 15 we have the first mention of redemption rescue that's the third chapter and the rest of Scripture until Jesus comes is the, the unfolding story of His plan of redemption. It's amazing, isn't it? It's just, to me, it's a powerful that we call that the, that very first mention of it, the proto-evangelium. It's, it's the first mention of the gospel of salvation. So He doesn't just say, you know what, well, why'd you put that tree there? He knew, he knew what was going to happen, but He also had an answer just like that to those who believe upon His name. And so part of this redemption is, and I, I, I digress on this one point, third chapter, if you think two parts. One is the rescue of your soul positionally. In other words, you become a child of God. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, you become a child of God and you're saved. So he redeems your soul for eternity. But the second part is, is not just the position of now becoming a child, eternal child of God, but it is the, the practice. It is the, the, the practicality of everyday living. That he also is there with you through this world until we come to the final chapter of the story of the gospel, which is, we see in Revelation is restoration. So when we, we get to restoration, he creates a new heaven and a new earth. It's all better than even at the beginning. <laughs> and no tree. <laughs> There's a tree of life, <clears throat> but there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that's really the story of, of this gospel. We are cre created in the image of God. You know why, when, when you think about why are these two sins, murder and um, adultery, so significant and i think one is uh we were made you were you and i were made in the image of god and when when someone destroys that it it, it reflects on the creator the reason for the immorality the lust the all of this sexual sins and take place why that is so serious is because that reflects on the unity of god the father 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are together in unity throughout Scripture. In fact, if you notice in Genesis 1.26, it says, and let us make man in our image. Us? What do you mean, let us? Well, he's, he's speaking of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, this unfolding story is for us. And today, in, in the, the practical living part, you can say, I, okay, I've put my faith and trust in Christ. I, I'm, I know that someday I'm going to go to heaven because it's personal. I still live in a fallen world. I live in a fallen body, and I still have battles every day. And we feel conflicted. I would, I would describe it this way. We are at war. We're at war. You talk about sexual temptation, lust, adultery, divorce, all the things that we face in, in those arenas and other arenas, we are at war, and you feel it. What kind of war is this? It is a spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers of this darkness against evil spiritual forces in the heavens every one of us <clears throat> feel this pressure of what I call three enemies that want to take you out <laughs> the first of those is what he describes as the cosmos the world we're not talking about the physical earth we're talking about the 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 system of this world the spirit of the age wants to destroy you if you walk through this world almost any city you go into that the the prevailing cultural opinion is not toward god and everything that we 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 see around us or we're exposed to in the media is is counter to that it pushes against that that, that is a battle we face. Secondly, my flesh, my, my nature, my, we, we say old nature. I remember hearing uh, my father-in-law say this, two natures beat within my breast. One is foul and one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. Dad used to talk about two dogs. You know, you got, the, you got the old nature, the old flesh, the old bent to do evil, to lust, to be angry. To, you, you have that. You, you live in that body, that flesh. You have a new nature that has been given to, to you in, in Jesus. And you're going to, until we get to heaven, we're going to have two natures. We have two natures, every one of us. And it is a struggle. People say, well, you have trouble with the devil. I said, I have trouble enough with myself. I don't even need the devil uh, to give me problems. But, the, but this is, and he said, they're like two dogs. He said, and the one you feed is the one that's going to dominate your life. And the third enemy, of course, is Satan, the prince of the power of the air who has not only a desire but an agenda to destroy your life. And he knows everything about you. Your, your tendencies, he's not omniscient, but he, know, he knows you. And he, he knows your weakness. And he wants to destroy your life. He wants to make you miserable. 
So how do we fight this war? This war, the war of the flesh, the war. We talk about anger. Anybody here guilty of anger? <laughs> yes. Anybody here guilty of lust? Yes. We may not have murdered someone. We may not have committed adultery. We're full of lust and full of anger and full of these things. How do we fight this war? I'd say first, recognize the seriousness nature, the serious nature of the battle. What's at stake? John Owen, the Puritan, once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. <laughs> it's not just like a walk in the park in this life. It, it, we, we are an, engaged in a spiritual warfare every day we get up. And I've shared with you before that every morning, the reason I go to the Word every morning is to get my head straight. Because when I wake up naturally, I have a bent to go the wrong way. I just do. And you do too. The seriousness of this, and he uses kind of a hyperbole. It's, um, it's an exagger- he exaggerates for a point. And we read this in verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you, you lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Why the right eye and the right hand? You say, well, that's okay, I'm left-handed. <laughs> well, <clears throat> well, the point is, for most people, the right eye dominant, the right hand, and so he's talking about the most significant parts of your body. Um, if, if this, your eye, is causing you to sin, better to gouge it out and lose something temporarily and physically than to lose something eternally. He's, he's, he's giving us really the weight. And, and I think what's, what's interesting here, he talks about the eye, the eye and the hand. The eye is the window to the soul. The eye is what you see. The eye is what you perceive on television, the movies, what you see in pornography, or what you look onto lust. It's where it begins. And it is, it is the first occasion for Satan to start working on you. So you have, you have the images, the scenes, the temptations, the visuals all around us that are just poured out over us. And then it talks about the hand. That's the actual doing of things, the, the physical doing of things. But in between the eye capturing the image and actually doing the act is the heart, right here. Eye, heart, hand. And what he's saying is, what, what's happening is, you, you may see something, temptation. That's not sin. Some things are unavoidable. I mean, we've got to live life. We, you're not going to avoid everything you see. You can avoid a lot of things, but you can't avoid everything. But the temptation is not the sin. Jesus was tempted. So it's not wrong to be tempted. Here's the temptation. But when it comes here to the heart, to the mind and the will and the emotions, when you start to to think over that and to go over that and to imagine with that and allow that to start dominate your thinking, it becomes sin. 
And sin will play itself out in physical action. So this is why Jesus is saying that your heart is what I care about because that's who really who you are and it's what no one sees. You can sit there and with all your family and have all kinds of thoughts going through your head that you would be totally embarrassed by. You say, well, it's, it's all hidden. No one knows. But eventually, what we meditate on, what we think will be played out in our lives. That's why he's trying to back this up. He's trying to say, it's not just that you commit adultery or I, I committed adultery. It's here is where you're entertaining things in your life. And, and I come back to lust. I think, you know, pornography is, is, is a huge problem today. In, in uh, what we call evangelical churches, like the, this church would be an evangelical church, they say that 60% of the men will view pornography during the course of a month. That's startling, isn't it? I, I read, too, that, that the number for pastors of evangelical churches is the same. Now, that's not too encouraging. But I think I, I know why. is because if, if a pastor has a problem, who's going to talk to about it? So I can't talk about that. I'll lose my job. And even the guys, they're not going to talk to people about it because they're going to say, you know, I, people won't respect me. You know, they'll think worse, less of me. So you have this private little battle you keep on losing. What we saw in the college, when, when Diane and I were at the college, was, was the... the the view, viewing of pornography among women is skyrocketing, just skyrocketing. And it's all, it's all going on here. It's all going on here. You can stop a lot of this stuff by some disciplines in your life, but you can't, you can't stop your nature. And so this is what we face. <clears throat> Strategies of Satan to destroy you, by tempting you, by having your heart unchecked. But as I shared earlier, I said, today I want to give you hope. <laughs> um, I can say it in one word. It's Jesus. Your hope is always Jesus. For salvation, for eternal life, for daily help, for the battle, your hope is Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, there is no hope. But the help comes from jesus and i and i as i shared last week in four ways the holy spirit when you receive jesus as your personal savior god the holy spirit takes up permanent residence in your life <laughs> that's why jesus said greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world so the holy spirit in you has greater power than satan greater power than the cosmic system, and greater power than your flesh. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not going to win. But He gives you that to walk with you every day, to be with you every day, to help you, to support you, to comfort you, to give you life, to give you encouragement. Secondly, He gives you His Word. He gives you the law. <laughs> he gives you the law. And I can tell the devil, here's what God says. I'm claiming this. I tell you what, I, every day of the week, pretty much, 
I'm claiming something God said because I need it. I'm claiming this. I need it. I need help. But his words are not just intellectual print. They are transforming words. They are supernatural, powerful words. They can disarm Satan, destroy the works of the devil, encourage your heart, and let you stake claim on what is true. You have his word. He calls it a sword. It's a sword to fight that battle. And then prayer. I have access to talk to God anytime, anywhere. Isn't that amazing? And you know what my prayer is a lot of times? Help! (laughs) I can't even articulate some flowery prayer. I just, God, I need help. You can call on Him whenever you need Him. And He is there and He loves you. And He wants you to win that battle. And then finally, he gives us the fourth, that I think may be often the most neglected, is the body. That's this. (laughs) This family. This family. God does not call you to be a Lone Ranger Christian. In Western culture, we become pretty independent. I don't need this. I don't need this. I don't need this. God says you do need this. You do need this. You need it to be encouraged. You need it to help hold you accountable. You need someone when when he says, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You need the church. You say, well, I I don't like this church. Get in a church that you can be part of the body. It's not a concert. It's not... It's not a a massive teaching time. It is a living, breathing body. And I'm, I'm just telling you this. You need me speaking into your life. And I need you speaking into my life. All of us have a part. All of us encourage each other in the spiritual warfare. And eventually, we're getting to chapter 4. Restoration. Do I hear a hallelujah? <clears throat> no more old nature. No more temptation. No more lust. No more anger. No more murder. No more adultery. We're getting there. But until we get there, we need Jesus. That's our hope. And we need His help. And He's given us His help. And we need to stick together. And so when I go back to the beginning of this message, not a person seated in this place has not been touched with divorce or remarriage or lust or sexual sins. We've all been impacted by this. We don't need to let this defeat us. We can still live on this earth with joy and happiness and confidence and victory in spite of all that. Isn't that amazing? And my prayer is this, that the difference that people will see in our lives is not because we've never been through junk. Because we've all been through it. But how we respond to it. 
Can I pray for you before we close today? Can I just pray for you? Let's bow our heads and, and uh, let me just pray. Because I know that every single person here is impacted by what we've talked about. Anger, lust, divorce, unfaithfulness, pornography, desiring, lusting things that you know God doesn't want you to have, unhappiness. Wherever you are, Jesus is your answer. So I ask you, have you personally accepted Jesus as your Savior? Have you said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I trust in Jesus alone for eternal life. Have you done that? You can do that right now. Just, just ask him right now. And if you are a Christian, how engaged are you with what he's given you to fight this battle? Are you walking with the Holy Spirit, listening to him speak into your life? Are you in God's word, getting what you need for that day? Are you praying about these battles and struggles? And are you connected in helpful ways and relationships with the body, the family of God, to be encouraged and to encourage? Lord, wherever we are, you know everything. You see our hearts, you know our weakness, you see our problems and our sins. And I pray that we'd not be discouraged today, but excited about what you've done for us. Help us to find our joy in Jesus and find our help in what he's given. And help us to be like a light in this community to show people the way, not just to eternal life, but to a full and meaningful life. Lord, I pray you hear every person here pray. For every need here, we lay before you. In Jesus' name.